From runasradio.com, you are listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 366, sequel 2014 panel with guests Mike Zwalling, Shep Shepard, Yevgeny Kiavashiv, and Joss DeBruin. Recorded Tuesday, April 15th, 2014. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell on a live Run As Radio here in Orlando at SQL Intersection. And I have an amazing panel from Microsoft, and I have an audience. Yeah. So we get to have some fun. So let's start off by introducing our panel. There, uh, Everybody's from Microsoft, right? Yes. Start at the end here with Mike. Is that yes, on? Yes, I'm Mike Zwilling. Hi, Mike. Uh, I'm an architect in the SQL Server development team. Uh, focusing a lot on uh, in-memory technology. Fantastic. Next up. Hi, I'm Shep Shepard. I am on the Windows Azure customer advisory team. And if you're familiar with SQL Cat, that's us. So. You've been and you've been at Microsoft for a while too, as I recall. I've, I've read been, your stuff over really? the years. Yeah, that's scary. Uh, I've been with Microsoft for eight years, okay. so not terribly long. Not terribly long. Uh, but yeah, when I do do a blog post, it seems like it does get a lot of attention because it's the things that are the most broken. So, <laughs> yeah. anyway. so you only talk about good news. I get that. Yes, exactly. Okay. So. Thank you, Chef. Hey, uh My name is Evgeny Krivoshev, and I'm program manager in the SQL Server cloud infrastructure team. So we're mostly responsible for cloud and hybrid technologies in the SQL Server box. Fantastic. Josh. Uh, my name is Joste Bruin. Um, I'm a program manager in the SQL Server team. My main focus is on uh, in-memory technologies. So, and there's been a few uh, sessions already this week about SQL 2014. Obviously, a big deal. I don't want to necessarily do this a shopping list. Does anyone want to start with uh, what's the feature that moves you the most? Uh, how we're moving this forward? Because last time I looked, the product was already pretty good. I think that's actually a, it's a good question and it's kind of tough to answer because I think we all have our favorites. Um, the biggest thing that we have put out, probably because it's a lot of work that was gone into it and it started in Microsoft Research, was uh, the in-memory OLTP, right. which we've called Hecaton for Hecaton. quite a few years and everybody knows it as that. Uh, so a lot of work went into that and we're spending a lot of time on it and we've had amazing success with the TAP customers and we have a couple of sessions going on tomorrow uh, to cover Hecaton. Uh, second to that, which is personally my favorite, is actually uh, we're calling uh, the marketing name is the in-memory data warehouse, which is actually the completion of what was the column store index in SQL 2012, uh, which we introduced. It was read-only, which everyone told me it was completely useless, even though it was really cute. <laughs> in 2014, it is now updatable. Um, okay. So, so and, I mean, it seems like Hecaton and the in-memory data warehouse are pretty similar. Not really. The Hecaton is, I mean, strictly in memory. When we say in memory for Hecaton, it is only in memory. Right. I mean, obviously, we still have the ability to do durable transactions if you so choose. You don't and have so to. so durability in memory? Uh, durability back to the transaction log. Okay. Because so, we still have to do ACID support. Yeah, so we're writing on the disk at some point. At some point, which if that's a problem for you, get faster disk. Um, <laughs> But Good news is that's an option. That is an option. And for uh, applications like session state, where the data is kind of trivial, after 30 seconds, nobody cares, you could actually go with a non-durable table. Because if the server reboots or the instance goes down, the data is useless anyway. Right. So then you can remove all the logging altogether. And then just basically you can run at the speed of the server entirely. Whereas the uh, what we call the in-memory data warehouse, technically it's not really in-memory until you read it off disk. Okay. But um, it's a nice part of our in-memory marketing technology, which uh, Buffer Pool Extension is another one that Evgeny will talk about in a few. But the in-memory data warehouse, uh, if you ever played with it, it's a completely different model from what we've ever done. Uh, we actually do a columnar store, which there are many competitors out there. Yeah. Instead of doing a traditional row store, we do a columnar store. When you do column store, you actually get amazing compression. Uh, the granularity is different, so the locking granularity is a million rows now. And the reason for that is each column will store one column segment, and one row segment will be one million rows. So every time you do a read, we'll pull in a million. Um, but the nice thing is you can do segment elimination and row elimination when you do the queries, which means that if we do not need that row, or if we do not need that column specifically, we won't touch it. 
Right, so, so it, it ends up being really efficient yeah, once you have a little bit very, of knowledge about where you want to get your data from. Exactly, it becomes extremely efficient. Okay. So, and the compression is uh, absolutely absurd. In some cases, we're seeing 90 to 95% compression wow. from a standard uh, row store table. That's zip levels. Those are my two favorite. <laughs> okay. Any other opinions on that before we drill into these a little further? I mean, I don't, Hecaton can steal the show, right? Like that's, my concern is it's sort of a blinding white light. This is the big deal feature. And there's a lot of other things that have gone on. I could add to that list. And my, my uh, favorite after those two is a buffer pool extension. It's also performance features. Basically when uh, we can choose one of the fast SSD devices. And actually, it works with any device, but uh, it doesn't make sense if it's not on SSD. And uh, just upload some of the buffer pool contents to that device, and that makes it way faster. Uh, so you get much better performance from your SQL Server, and you're getting less IOPS with your storage, which is also a big deal. So more clever memory tricks, if I hear you right, Gavini, is dealing with the buffer pools more intelligently yeah, that, yeah, that's correct. That, uh, to some cases, it's similar to what Windows does with a page file. Yeah. But it's a li little more workload specific. Okay, I mean, because I've always felt like SQL did that anyway. It was quite, it, it keeps stuff in memory that it thinks you're going to use again. But this is Buffer Pools is elevating this? The Buffer Pool is ca currently can you keep part of that sync on a uh, fast storage device. Okay. That's that, that the thing. You don't need to go back to the database file for some of the pages. And the interesting thing is that it uses only the clean pages, so you can abandon the contents of this file at any point of time. So if SSD fails, nobody cares except for the performance here, there will be no right. other Right, you only feel it's a performance set. Yeah. Okay, I appreciate that. That's, that's clever. Mike? Oh, I was just going to add to that. that yeah. Um, if, you're, if all your data is already on an SSD, doesn't necessarily buy you much, but if you have lots of data on spinning media and don't want to convert it all to SSD, you take the SSD buffer pool extension and yeah, starting to um, see terabytes of SSD, but not petabytes of SSD right. unless you're NSA. But you know that's a different thing. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so another feature I wanted to mention, also a performance feature, is uh, delayed durability. What what this gives you is you take the log I/O out of the critical path for your transaction. Um, and you give up some durability guarantees to, to do that. So basically, if you have a delayed durable transaction, then the commit will uh, will acknowledge to the client before hardening uh, the log to before disk. it's actually written the log. Yeah, well, okay. it is written to the log, but not yet flushed. But to not disk. actually flushed to disk. Yes. Okay. So this this will make um, this has two benefits. First, it decreases the latency, so the actual execution time. Um, of your transaction is going to be shorter. This is especially a concern if you have like really short running transactions and you don't have the fastest uh, media for, right. for the log. So it will be faster. And also the log writes will be more efficient because when, uh, when you don't need to write the log with each transaction, you can bundle up the IOs for a bunch of transactions. So you can actually have a higher throughput uh, on your transaction log. And We've seen even like in throughput. Uh, so on the surface, this seems like a scary thing, right? I remember when we, you know this is almost acid. Yeah, you're playing with the durability, but I've also immediately thought of that. What you're exactly what you're saying. I've got a hundred thousand records to insert here, and if I'm doing them individually, you're going to wait until each one is committed before you come back to me on it. That's right. If you would have a hundred thousand small transactions, yes, right. You need to wait for each. We need to do one I/O per transaction, whereas if you do delay durability, you have far fewer far fewer I/Os. Of course, indeed, you're giving up some durability guarantee. So if your server falls over, you may lose some data, uh, but it is usually going to be in in uh, in kilobytes. Right. What you, what you might lose, depending also on on how on whether the log. Uh, device can keep up, but if it generally can keep up with the uh, with the insert rate in the log, then it will be in the order of kilobytes that, that you could potentially uh, lose. Okay, Jeff. Yeah, one quick. I want to. He just gave me a great segue uh, to standard edition. That the in standard edition for 2014, we've uh, finally increased the memory footprint to 128 gig from Yay. 64. 
Uh, we also have added buffer pool extension. So even now you have 128, you can now have the basically what I call the warm cache for the buffer pool, which I think we capped it at like four times the amount of memory in the server. And we also have delayed durability, which was added to SQL Server Standard Edition so those as well. Are, we're not just talking enterprise features here. Yeah. These, also standard features. these three, yeah, the memory, the buffer pool extension, and the delayed durability all went into Standard Edition for 2014. So, Chef, if you've got 128 physical, you can have 512 buffer pool extension? Yes, in Standard Edition. So if we have of physical memory, which we're allowed to address in Standard Edition. It's, the, it's actually the, uh, whatever you set the max server memory to is what we actually do the calculation on. Okay. So yes, if you have 128 gig allocated to SQL Server, four times that is where we'll cap your buffer pool extension. So that'll kind of get you past, because even in my mind, for standard edition, 128 does not get you very far. So, but yeah, so that kind of helps a bit. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what a reasonable standard edition scale is now with the rate that hardware is moving. Yeah, we decided it was not 64. With 64, it's just not enough. Question here, sir? I'm just curious about the delayed durability. Is that based on number of transactions or a specific time slice or something? Yeah, that's great, a great question. When does the delay end on delayed durability? Like, yeah, what are you waiting for? Um, uh, basically, what we do technically is we don't, we don't force flush the log uh, block that you're uh, writing to. We don't force flush it to disk at commit time. So basically we just return to the client, say success. Um, and then uh, when the, the actual log flush happens, there, there are two conditions under which this happens. So one condition is uh, a log block actually fills up. So if I think right now it's about 60k or so, if you write 60k, we automatically flush that. And the other condition is if you have a, a fully durable transaction, this will, all, this will also force all the previously written uh, log to disk. And then we also have a, a timer-based function that, so, so, such that you don't lose too much. So I can mix uh, delayed durability and durable transactions? Yes. Uh, you, how, how am I declaring this in the first place? Well, uh, there, there are two ways to control uh, delayed durability. One is uh, at the database level. So if you want to use it at yeah, all. Yeah, I immediately thought like read uncommitted, you know, as, as sort of a, yeah. you're going to set it at that level. Yeah, so uh, you, you basically, you, um, you first need to, if you want to use it, you first need to allow it at a database level. So right. by default, it is actually disallowed because we think as DBA, you should be able to force all your transactions to be fully durable since you can be accountable. For well, yeah, and I, and I appreciate you not changing defaults I've counted on since you were making the product. <laughs> That's right, so this is by default, it is disabled. So you explicitly need, need to set it to allowed, right. so, and, then you can, uh, and then you can set it uh, at, at the commit time. So we have a, an option with the commit keywords. So you can say commit with delayed durability equals on, and then this, this, this commit is going to be delayed durable. Uh, you can also force it for the entire database. So with the same database option, delayed durability, if you, you can set it to forced, and then all user transactions will be delayed durable. Okay, so you can set it so everybody's always delayed durable. And getting back to the original question here, is like when does it actually write? Uh, obviously, if you have a bunch of delayed durability and have a durable transaction, then everything must be written because order's still yeah, relevant. That's right, or, order is... is uh, and otherwise, if we're always in delayed durability, is it just at an interval? Or when I give yeah, the page is Yeah, it is whenever you fill your log block, about 60K or so. Right. Uh, or, uh, and also a timer-based function. I, f I forget how often we do every couple hundred milliseconds or so, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's, it's uh, at least, at most, a granularity of a second. It's, it's, yeah, un it's at, well at, under that, I believe. At I most, I think it is well under that, yeah. Okay. And there's also uh, a stored procedure that we added, SP flush log, which, which force flushes. Forces for everybody, the, the, the get the log, log yeah. completely. Add, so uh, after that command completes, you know that every previously committed transaction has been flushed to disk. Okay. And is it configurable in any way, or is it just a hard-coded timer? The question is, is this configurable in any way, or is it a hard-coded timer? It is hard-coded. Okay. And again, it's like a transactional, at significant, I got to think, do you have a sense of performance benefit when you do this, when your transaction velocity is high? Um, yes. So, well, the, the story is a bit mixed. So it is mainly a feature for latency. So mm -hmm. you want your transactions to be fast, like if you have 
slow uh, slow log uh, I/O device, um, but also as I mentioned, in some cases can be beneficial for overall throughput. Um, not if you have a very high uh, rate of concurrency, but if you have like a medium rate of concurrency, mm -hmm. we've seen like in transaction processing applications with maybe about 25 connections, you can get up to like we've seen 30% increase in, in throughput. Interesting. Yeah, so it, it's one of those things where while when you're in the performance tuning phase of development, you might want to tinker with these settings to see if you can, if you get a benefit and whether you can tolerate the effects of delayed durability. That's right, yeah. So, yeah, those two things are kind of going to go, go together. Yeah, I might add that also applies into the high availability system. So a delayed durability transaction won't be, um, won't have the delay that normally you would have with always on in right. synchronous mode, for example. So you can use delayed dur durability in always on so that your mirror machine is, is delayed. Well, the mirrored machine wouldn't be delayed. It's still, we'd, we'd still be running in, um, every time we write a log block to local storage, we'd be right. writing it to the, to the replica. But, um, but the, the user transactions wouldn't be waiting for that extra network round trip. Right. So yeah, I, I think you'd have more benefit when you're dealing with an always-on configured database. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Appreciate that. Question at the back. Well, what Mike just said, does that apply synchronous as well as asynchronous? So Mike, from, based on the, the always-on statement, synchronous as well as asynchronous, it works the same way? Uh, yes, correct. Okay. So in other words, you can be running synchronous, you're your fully durable transactions remain fully synchronous, but you can selectively then make these um, non-durable transactions not synchronous effectively. Yeah, I think it's just about squeezing more throughput out of things. I, I, I appreciate the thinking around that. Do we talk a little bit about uh, Azure's role in an on-prem SQL Server database these days coming into 2014? Yeah, uh, we, we, we have added a few features related to Azure. Uh, that's supporting Azure. First, we added a lot of things in the backup space. We added uh, better UI and PowerShell support for back backup to URL. Uh, we added uh, the new, f completely new feature that we call managed backup. And managed backup is uh, you just enable it, you configure it once, and it does all the backup tasks for you. So it uh, does all the backups, retention, it. Uh, that take, takes care of uh, keeping the restore chain uh, and uh, may make sure that uh, it doesn't use too much of uh, your instance when, when there's other load, so it could skip some of the time slot just because it sees some load. Or uh, in the opposite situation, it could also do some extra backups if he, uh, if it sees that there is a, a lot of log writes. So it, there is a lot of intelligence uh, built in, into that managed backup. Uh, there's some limitations, of course, but uh, we're working on removing those limitations in the future. And is the goal ultimately to be able to fail over to an Azure instance of, the, of a database from on-prem? Uh, the, and there's this also things for that. It's it just not a backup space. Right. It's uh, there, there are basically two things that exist for that. There's uh, one thing that we added is a uh, Azure uh, a, a SQL Server files in Azure, mm -hmm. and uh, this allows you to store data files directly in uh, Windows Azure storage. And so you're actually copying the SQL data files directly to Azure. Uh, you can just issue the create database statement uh, okay. specifying uh, URL instead of the file path. So you need, you just need to create a credential and uh, that's it. Okay. It, it. It will go from that point. And that gives you a lot of uh, possibilities that is not existing with a, just a normal data files on a file system because you can keep your machine on premise and uh, encrypt your data but store it in the cloud and that may be the good option for some kind of archived cold data which you are not accessing often. That could be also the possibility to build your pseudo failover uh, thing because in case of some of the VM fails you can just detach the database and attach it on, on the other machine. Right. I mean, I, I, would you use it as a migration strategy? Stand up another database, connect to the cloud, start syncing data to it over time, and eventually you can 
detach and attach to the Azure one in a different way? For the migration, probably it's not the most kind of convenient uh, feature. So we, we have other features uh, that other could be you, it you, sure. you use it for migration. And just, just, just to complete that thing about the other features, and also there is a lot of uh, changes in the always-on availability groups that uh, allows you to create secondaries in Azure. And we, we also increase the number of readable secondaries. That's Again, that, that's kind of demands that uh, cloud drives. It's not a cloud-specific feature, but cloud drives a lot of those features. Yeah, absolutely. Chef. Uh, something I wanted to add. Um, one of, I mean, Evgeny mentioned that we've increased the number of secondaries for the availability groups in 2014, so now we're up to eight. Right. You can still only have two synchronous, though, because we learned early on, uh, I think very, very early on, that if we sync too many, it just slows everything down. Yeah, the M plus so one problem. We capped it at two, and even with eight, and the other six being async, I think we documented a, uh, like a less than a 1% performance hit on uh, basically on the primary, which was good. Yeah. Uh, second part of that is what we're seeing a lot of customers do, specifically with Azure and availability groups, is they're very interested in using Azure as their DR site. Um, it's a nice, because I, I was a DBA for many years on the outside, and the one thing that always killed us and got us in trouble, and we got yelled at, even though it wasn't our fault, was where's our disaster recovery site, how many servers are there, and can we really execute on it? Right. Um, and frequently, I remember our DR strategy was an updated resume. That's, <laughs> it, it is you know. a strategy. So with Azure, it kind of, and it gives you the flexibility that, like Evgeny said, you can actually have your databases in the cloud that are actually basically a URL. So it's essentially similar to like an SMB. Uh, we right. call it XStore. But, uh, so that kind of gives you some expandability. And the nice thing about the Azure VMs is there's, you can scale them on demand. Right. Uh, you shut the thing down, you can go from a single core to eight core, get the memory back up, you know, so it can actually turn it into something that resembles a production server. It still feels like you're going to have to assemble your fail-to strategy. Correct. Oh, that's, yeah, for the business continuity, you know, system, that's always going to be the case. Yeah. You know, I, but... I, I, in some ways, it's like you'd be lying to just say, hey, there's this button you push and everything's fine. It's, like, yeah, it, it always takes have work. to figure this out for themselves. Yeah, it, it, and it takes work. And the, the thing that always I remember getting us in trouble is the fact that we would have our our failover ratio was like 10 production servers to one. Right. You know, in Azure, at least, you can dedicate a single machine VM with one core and maybe four gig of memory, you know, whatever right. we have the cap at. That's costing and you then, a dollar a month. Correct. And then when you actually have to fail over, you can scale it up. Second part of that, uh, which we have finally gotten to the point we've gotten over is the fact, and I realize this is slightly off, but I think it's critical to mention it, is we have a, a strategy to get your data to the cloud now. Because mm -hmm. uh, we had Brook, uh, what we uh, codenamed Brooklyn for uh, a couple of years, uh, which essentially was nothing more than a 100 megabit connection using an internet from your data center to the cloud, which wasn't practical. You couldn't move, you know, unless all your databases are on USB drives, it's not fast enough to move anything. Right. Uh, we now have Express Route, which gives you the option from 100 megabit all the way up to 10 gig, you know, with relationships with AT&T and Level 3 and um, uh, Verizon, I believe, and one other, uh, Equinix. So, you know, and... But the same so way we used to lay dedicated fiber connections between our our disparate data centers to have that guaranteed bandwidth, we're getting that equivalent option now with the Azure. cloud. Yeah, so now you can actually connect your data center to the cloud and actually have it as a feasible alternate site, right. which for a back to availability groups and always on, you need a level of performance so you can get your data there. Yeah. And then you it becomes more reasonable. Where you are in the sync. Yes. Yeah, the, and the fail to point is really still going to be, it's complicated. Yes. You've got to detach, a difference is going to get attached to it. You know what your your life in the cloud is going to look like during uh, during a failover is right. quite different than what right. your on-prem look like. Right. But one of the things we're trying to make it easier to at least extend your data center today, which is the hybrid scenario. Yeah. So. Well, and, I, and I, we've all looked at that piece of hey, I want that stuff in the cloud. It'll cost me less to than maintaining a, a complete duplicate site, and I can stand it up, scale it when I need to. Just actually assembling that is not a trivial thing to do. Yeah, it's not rocket science. I think you can do it fairly quickly. Yeah. Because obviously deploying a SQL server in the cloud, I mean, to say it's probably six mouse clicks and you have a, you know, a four core machine with SQL already installed on it, it's ready. Yeah, okay. it's just getting the data there because it's still a lot of data. Correct. So do that routinely, pay for that monthly so that it's there, and then you have this option to switch over fairly rapidly. Yes, another feature I want to talk about um, is, again, a performance feature. It's uh, uh, we have a new cardinality estimator. Benefit of this, you will get better query plans. So in a, in a nutshell, what, what the cardinality estimator is, um, uh, it, a cardinality estimator is part of the query optimizer that, that um, estimates 
like how many rows will be processed with each operator in the query plan. And based on that, it applies a costing function and use that to figure out uh, like what, what is the, the fastest plan. Um, and we have seen, with the old cardinality estimator, we have seen some problems that it would not get the, the estimates quite right. So we, we built a new one, uh, and, uh, and we have seen that like 99% of uh, the time you will get, uh, uh, the same or, or, or a better plan. Hmm. Seen really significant. Yeah, I've, I mean, query planning has always been SQL Server strength. So is it just that data's changed? That, that we're now seeing, you know, needing a, a, a better cardinality planner? Um, Why? No, Why is this working? Yeah, we, we, have, we have simply seen some, some issues with the old estimator, and we made a better one. Okay. Yeah, simple as that. It's always learnings. Yeah. I mean, I, I would think I, I would add probably on that that, um, you know, when the estimates are bad, it's support calls, right? Right. It, uh, it it's costs really you money. painful, <laughs> right? And it's painful for everyone involved. And right. So, um, uh, while in certain patterns, and for many people, it's all fine, and they never encounter a problem, so it looks great. Right. But when you do encounter it, it can be severe. And, and so, and it's consistent for you that you could, you acquire, a, you know, encounter that problem over and over again. It's going to get old pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got a question, but I want to address this real quick. Um, like you were saying, one of the problems we see, we see all the things right. that go wrong with the query plans because customers call us. But one of the things that we did, we did a lot of work on, we have a lot of uh, stuff. You don't see them all. You don't see all the bad news. We see a lot of bad news. don't call you when things are working great. That's, my, that's exactly right. People <laughs> never call us and thank us because everything's awesome. Um, but one of the things that was really critical when they did the work on the new cardinality estimator was to try and get predictable plans time over time, even right. when there's a distribution change or a statistical change in the data, which was really a problem. But so... There was a lot of work done to mostly try and uh, flatten out so where you don't get unpredictable query plans time right. over time because that's the thing the customers got the most annoyed with and okay. most upset about. We so, want consistency, even if right. it's bad and news. They, well, and then we give you options to do that. But one of the things I wanted to stress very quickly that everybody knows is that the new uh, cardinality estimator is implemented by changing the database version oh. to 120. So there is an option still for the old. Uh, we don't just give you the new cardinality estimator and now you're stuck with it forever. There actually is a couple of ways to do it, and I need to plug a paper that has actually been released uh, today or yesterday, I think. Uh, we worked with uh, Joe Sack, and he worked with us, however you want to look at it, to do uh, a white paper on the cardinality estimation and all the changes that were made, mm -hmm. and some samples of how it used to work versus how it works today. So you can kind of get an idea of uh, what the changes are going to be. Because if you're going to go with the new cardinality estimator, you could have some significant changes. Because when we mess with it, when we break things, we usually break them pretty badly. <laughs> so we want to give you kind of an opt-out. And it's going to be, this is going to be one of the things that, um, you know, I, I already know at some point it's going to be a crit set generator for us. To get the new cardinality estimator, you change your database compatibility to the current version, which is 120. To flip it back to the old behavior, you go back to the prior version, which is 110. And you and restart, I presume. No, you don't have to restart. Oh, it's really? Immediate. Yes. Uh, there are also, and I won't name them out, but there are a couple of trace flags that if you are in the using the new cardinality estimator, there's a trace flag uh, that you can pass into the query to make just that one query take on the old behavior. Because you may love everything in the wow, in the, but in the new one problem query. That's a yes, problem time so and you time don't, again. You don't have to throw the whole baby out now. You just fix it. that one query. On that same note, if you're using the one one zero compatibility. You can use a trace flag to get the future. So we have it going in both directions. Okay. And it is in Joe's white paper. I'll save you the numbers from having to write it down. But uh, yeah, that'll also we'll make you go look at the show paper. notes, definitely, because that would be something. You're exactly right. Most of the time, this thing works great. I got this one set of functions that drive me crazy with erratic behavior. Maybe I could try the other uh, cardinality estimator. Right. All right. Had a question here? Yeah. Uh, my question is with the new cardinality estimator, is our common table expressions going to be any better or? I guess, even usable for when you're dealing with large amounts of data. Because um, we've gotten to the point where where, where I work, we they don't even scale. So we'd rather just use a table and a loop. I mean, we're ta I'm talking about our, our product is a document repository, and it's searchable. And um, so it's basically for the metadata for, for documents, for litigation processing. And um, we can't use common table expressions at all. In fact, I still have people using them, and as soon as we see it, we take it out and replace it because we know when we get to production, it won't scale at all. We have databases with 60 million um, document records in the, the main table. 
That's, I mean, it's fair, and I, I was going to ask you a question, like, what's large for you? So it's 60 million rows, and, and they're big rows, I imagine, if you're well, doing... Well, I actually did, a, I actually did a, a, like a case study with a common table expression as opposed to a, uh, an insert then with a loop under it, and I was just seeding it with, with uh, like, 1,000 rows, 10,000 rows, 100,000 rows, just to see. It's the same hardware. In fact, it's the same on the same, you know, just two different scripts. And the, the tipping point was at about 100,000 rows, over 100,000 rows, the loop outperformed the common table expression. Interesting. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't think we particularly targeted CTEs with, uh, with new CE. Um, so I would say uh, try it, but um, the, question is, the question is also whether your, whether your problem was caused by bad yeah, was uh, cardinality actually the not. issue? The solution is always, for us, has always been take out the common table expression, put in a loop. It's, I think it's because SQL Server cannot predict how many rows it's dealing with with the common table expression well compared to the loop. I mean, that's, yeah. it's, it's universally fixed it, always. Yeah, I... We have a similar problem with, with table, variable, table, table variables. We, like, we pretty much never use those when we're going over like a thousand rows. In the table variable, yeah, with table variables, yeah, there we have, we have the limitation that we always estimate just one row in there. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that 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 has not changed. Okay. okay. And with CTEs, I would say. I mean, basically, our policy now is don't use them, but we have people that still insist on using them because they think it makes the code look cooler. It's like I don't <laughs> care how cool it looks if it runs slower for a small data set. I don't care as long as it runs fast for a really large data set. You know what I mean? We're trying to smooth yeah. out the peaks and valleys. Make something takes 300 milliseconds instead of 100 milliseconds. That's who cares because I want it to take three seconds instead of 30 seconds on a large data set. You know, that's that's really yeah. our, pro, our our issue. Maybe offline here we can uh, we can sync up and okay. get some information. Can take, yeah, so the, we can take it back. Topic to of CTEs is a big topic yeah. without a doubt. Yeah. Another question back here. CTEs are treated. Back on the uh, estimate uh, from a table variable, I thought you guys changed it from to 100 rows now for 2014 when there's no statistics at all. I believe it's still one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how much difference an estimate of one or 100 would matter. It's still a pretty small set of data. Yeah. All right, should we jump off in a different direction here for a little while? Because we haven't really talked about availability much other than there was a brief graze on always on. Uh, active secondaries, Shep, is that you? Yes. I think we've actually covered some of this. Yes. Increased availability of active secondaries. So, so what first does that thing, really mean? What does that mean? Uh, if anyone's ever had an availability group and they've had their primary fail, and, well, let's put it this way. If you lose quorum, your secondaries are offline yes. in 2012. Well, you use quorum, you have nothing. Yeah, people were very sad about that. Um, <laughs> now, your secondaries, all eight of them, when they're in a resolving state, are continue, uh, you can still read them. Okay. That's probably, that's the main thing that we need to talk about on that, is to get the point out that while we're resolving, trying to figure out what's gone wrong or who's about to be the primary, right. you can still read it. Right. Um, so, so, I mean, and the uncertainty here is I don't know how I, what I would write to who is most current. Yeah, so the readable. that sort of discussion is going on, right. what you do have, you can read. Which is still a, it's a fairly fast process, but we, you know, there were a couple What's of issues. What's fast for you, Shep? 
Well, hopefully under a minute. Under a minute, okay. So, um, where you know, some would say under, real fast is under 100 milliseconds. I would agree. I would love that. Yeah, and, but, yeah. I'm okay, not going to. So I'm minute, not going to. I'm not going to be promises on an environment so I don't know anything about. Uh, you know, uh, I, as a guy who spends as much time on the operations side of systems as development, we talk right. about planning for two minutes of recovery and a failover. Right? right. Like that's just what it takes. So if right. you're staying under two minutes, I'll still talk to you. Yeah, and I, I, in, mo in many cases, what we've seen in the lab, it's typically a few seconds. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, but labs what fail we, very elegantly. Oh, not mine. <laughs> uh, but you know, the one thing we really focused on with 2014, in addition to getting the extra secondaries, was also to make sure that the, your your data was con was still accessible while this process of the primary going down was going on. Yeah, because that was the big thing, and we had some cases where if we lost quorum, because one of the things that I saw in the lab, and I know a lot of customers saw. Is they would use a uh, you know uh, an availability group so they'd have a secondary and they'd use a file share quorum, and if nobody was paying attention, they would lose the file share quorum. Their primary would go down, so they had no quorum and they never knew. Right. We actually had a case where you know in my lab where the the uh, secondary the file share was offline for three days and nobody knew it. We executed <laughs> a failover and everything just went offline. We're like, this isn't a good solution. Yeah, so funny. We resolved that. A, in I the just fact had a DFS that, incident just like that oh, where DFS yes. hadn't actually synced to the remote servers for a month. Yeah, that's on. That's sad. Um, so that was kind of the main thing that we did that. In addition, uh, and the secondaries and the availability group and the, the transitions from 2012 to 2014, it's, a, it's an hour and a half talk, but that's the main thing we wanted to get out. And there's also significantly more logging in as many places as we can log something about what's currently going on. Uh, I mean, to the error log, to X events, we've expanded the DMVs, so there's much more goodness to help you figure out what's, gone, what's going on. That's the big thing on that one. Right, and, and these are still relatively new features. You know, I, I feel like you guys are, are getting feedback from the field and trying to figure out what the right way to do things is. Right. Appreciate that. Question here? So going back to the discussion about the quorums and the secondaries going offline, is there any talk about putting that into a service pack for 2012, or is that strictly going to be a 2014 feature? I, my understanding is it's going to be pretty much 2014 because of the changes that it took. So, but yeah, it was a, it was, I think it was a... a a decent feature improvement for 2014. It wasn't something I think we could just flip a switch and it's really simple to backport. Thank you. Yeah, I guess there's always a question when it comes to these uh, 2014 is how many folks are going to move quickly and how many are going to move slow. Right. Because you've been making good versions of SQL Server for a while now, and why would I break stuff that works for me? Yeah, just to, to echo that comment, I think you can see... In general, it's a fairly targeted release, right? Right. Core performance, core availability, um, not widespread sweeping changes across the entire product. Um, right. And, and so in, in, in that sense, um, if a releases, big releases in the past have been disruptive, I, I would expect this one would be a lot less. It's, right. it's intentionally it's, more focused, more targeted. It seems to me like this is one of those versions where I upgraded this and everything not only works, it goes faster. Yeah, that's generally the intent. I like that. Question here? Well, I think it was kind of just answered, but I'm wondering about um, are the availability groups always or still in 2014? Are they still within the same cluster, or is there any thought of having um, the secondary be outside of that cluster? Oh. Yes, we still still use uh, Windows clustering technologies to to build all its own cluster, so it's, it still depends on that. We, we, we know that, yes, it's a painful process to build that Windows cluster, and if you need uh, something uh, off-premises, then, then you need basically to, to do the VPN here to extend your Active Directory here, to extend your Win Windows infrastructure here. All those things need to be in place in order for all this on to work. And it's within the always-on cluster that you've set up, like not another cluster that you've already got in your infrastructure, because that's kind of the lines I was thinking of is we've already got some clusters. Could we incorporate those into the architecture somehow? But it sounds like probably not. So all, all this own cluster is built on top of the Windows uh, clustering infrastructure. So we, we utilize Windows clustering infrastructure in order to do all that cl clustering work for all this own. So this is why there is a dependency on, on that. And it's, I mean, ultimately, is your goal to how, how do I get to another cluster or get off-prem essentially with this? The availability group? Potentially, or just make use of clusters that we already have up and running that aren't part of Always On, but are up and running and doing just fine. But we'd like to maybe make a secondary available there. Uh, sounds like that 
it sounds like that's um, not part of 2014, and that's okay. I just wanted to clarify. It 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 works. We have a guidance how you can do that for Azure, for example. How you can do that for different on-prem uh, on-prem data centers. So it, it it works. It's extendable, but uh, because of that clustering infrastructure, the amount of work that needs to happen is it's the limitation of the way yeah. Windows clustering works at this yeah. point. But I mean, I also like the idea of the, the Azure features, maybe not this time around, but eventually could be a way to connect up other data centers, remote or, or just in a different cluster. All right, Chap. Yes, I think there's another thing with my name on it. SQL Server failover cluster instance using a cluster shared volume. That's what those initials all stand for. FCI, FCI CSV. CSV. Yeah, my head was going to explode. I, I had to look and uh, you <laughs> always hope you don't forget when people are staring at you. Uh, we, this actually is one of the things we just want to get out and the feedback from the community is always interesting that Windows supports cluster shared volumes. They have. So basically you just expose a disk, like an, uh, a path, right? Whack, whack, UNC, there's your data. Um, you can now do that with SQL. Um, we have quite a bit of information uh, for 2014. Uh, kind of go look in the books online, but we're just trying to get the information out. But essentially what will happen then, instead of you actually mounting your disk to a Windows server like you normally would, you'll actually now just hit it with a, uh, a UNC path name. And it's still, you know, you're still using Windows cluster. We just added one more option that you can connect to the drive. But you are connecting the database via SMB, uh, which in this case, you know, the latest version of Windows, you'll be using SMB 3.0, which is pretty resilient. And does that open the door to us starting to use storage services that actually has some smarts around, hey, I'm going to use this stuff on SSDs and move this stuff back to, to spitting media, that kind of thing? It certainly could. I mean, one of the things that we uh, talk about is more efficient use of your SAN. So it does kind of open up the idea that, you know, and I haven't, I'll say honestly, I haven't done much experimentation with SANs moving my databases around. Sure. As far as, you know, it tearing my storage for me. Well, it's, yes. it's easy to move stuff around a SAN. You just buy more SAN. Yeah, well, yeah. There is this concept of tiered storage in some of the higher-end yes. SANs. Uh, but I mean, but you're also seeing it coming from from the the server team now with, with Windows storage, storage spaces. Yeah, storage Correct. space is amazing. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and pretty uh, well priced uh-huh. compared to Sans, anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because we do have tiered storage. I think we only have two tiers. I don't recall right now. Yes. Uh, at the moment, but yeah, you could have an SSD tier and then a normal. And you know, basically, you build your own SAN at home is what it is. But I just so. think, from a SQL Server perspective, you need more intelligence than just what's hot on the disk as to how what tier you'd want to end up on. Right. You know, I think there's some, it might be a bit more challenging than that. We're starting to see it try to work with Exchange as well. Right. But Exchange, you know, very granular files, it's pretty apparent what should end up on the SSD, what should end up on the spinning disk. Right. I with think SQL. You want SQL Server to direct that a bit more. Yeah. It, with SQL Server, when you start talking about that, it starts becoming very complicated. Yeah. In the fact that whose decision is it to figure out which one of these tables or which one of these files needs to be on tiered storage or SSD and which one needs to be on slow disk in right. column store? with this other thing called archival compression, which will take up almost no space. <laughs> uh, but it does become, it's like, where do you draw the line between how much do we let the technology determine what uh, it should do for you versus how much architecture you put into the system right. well, as far as files and file directives. Right. Yeah, this is my archive table, and you can leave it on spinning disk, yeah. except that at month end when it's queried constantly. Right. And, and from an engine perspective, obviously, we're thinking about that because, you know, we've introduced new stuff like, you know, the Hecaton. It's like, you know, great for OLTP for, you know, high, hot, really moving workloads. But at some point, that data can become a little bit more static. Mm-hmm. So you probably don't want it occupying memory anymore. Yeah. You know, so at that point, it, you know, and it's kind of... There seems to be hinting. Uh, the question is, could you learn that from behavior? That the rate of utilization starts to drop, and now it's worth the cost to move down to the speeding to the spinning media, and vice right. versa. That you pull right. it up as it gets busier, right. or is it got to be directed? Yeah, it's a great question. Good, I'm ready to join the team. I think <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been having a good time with storage spaces, and they've been, it's been working very well for me at a file level. Yeah, but running a SQL Server gives me chills. Like it just seems complicated. Why? Just there's a lot to it to, to actually have it figure out the right places for those things to go. Okay, you already do that a lot with memory. Now you want to do it with storage as well. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, just on your comment on storage spaces, you just opened up another segue for me. Uh, in the image gallery for Azure for the virtual machines, we mm-hmm. actually have a SQL 2012 and a SQL 2014 data warehouse image. Uh, and with the images up there, you can only mount a one terabyte drive, which is really annoying for existing systems who yes. don't have perfect one terabyte size files and have exactly as many as we allow for each size VM. Um, so for the data warehouse, we actually, once you have uh, created your storage account and mounted the drive, we automatically run a PowerShell script using uh, storage spaces to turn them into one big drive for you. 
Nice. So, you know, if all else fails, you can go hijack, the, create a VM, go hijack the scripts, delete the VM, and then you can use those for your own at home. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, so we are embracing it and we are using it. And the data warehouse uh, image, uh, images in the cloud are, they're using the storage spaces. So, That's yeah, cool. and it's good. And it's the idea behind it. And we've had customer testing and we have a white paper actually also on the using storage spaces in uh, Azure IaaS related specifically to SQL is that um, back in the day, at some point, we've all tried to take, uh, you know, four or five or six drives uh, on our local machine and then raid them using Disk Manager. Yep. We usually only do that once or twice because we figure out the performance isn't as awesome yeah. as we'd like for it Turns to be. Turns out raid controllers were doing something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were. Uh, storage spaces does not have nearly that level of overhead. So no. you don't have that cost or that penalty of slowing everything down when you try and do it right. Yeah, so. well, and, and it, it feels to me, we've been talking about this on some other shows, that uh, if I'm a SAN vendor right now, I'm a little nervous because uh, this, this product that comes as part of Windows is, is getting smarter and smarter at handling just a bunch of disks. Right. And, and so, but it's going to be interesting to see how the products that Microsoft makes built on top of those things, uh, if they choose to take advantage of it or do it their own way. Right. All right. So that, that's not 2014. That's later. We're going a little V next at this mm -hmm. point. Trying to see what. Yeah, we talked too far into the future. Now all everybody I has to sign an NDA okay. before they leave. No one's no one sitting next to me has punched me yet. So, <laughs> and I warned them. I'm the one that will actually slip. So, um, anything we haven't covered, guys? Questions you've got? Should we spend some time on Hackathon? We've been avoiding it now because I wanted to give everybody else a little light. You have two of the best guys for Hackathon sitting up here. One of them's not me. Yeah. From the back. Explain resource governor for IO works. Explain, explaining resource governor for IO? Oh, boy. So, uh, resource governor, um, so just a little step back. So before resource governor has uh, CPU and mem memory limitation, now we added the IO limitation. So it's existing resource governor. Uh, you are familiar with that already. So no significant changes, just a new keyword that allows you to control the I.O. And for I.O., you specify the number. Uh, you, you could specify two, two things. For uh, every group that you are limiting, you could specify the number of I.O.s uh, you would like that group to have. And you specify min and max. And uh, for every volume, you could also specify the maximum number of IOs that sh should go to that volume. So those those two things, we, we basically put, putting some caps for, for you. And that's very useful, in especially for some consolidation scenarios when you have uh, a lot of different workloads uh, on the same instance and you would like to make sure that certain workloads are getting a uh, certain level of performance. I mean, that's where Resource Governor gets interesting is as more simultaneous connections are up to things and your resources are more constrained, you know, are you actually making an assessment that makes sense? Yeah, so that, that, that's what we do. And uh, there's up to 64 resource groups that you can create. So okay. It's, uh, resource pools. So you're able to set priorities for each yeah. one. Yeah. I, I don't think that... If you need more than 64, what are you doing? Uh, that's a lot. Actually... I think I could probably get by with three. Yeah, a majority of people prefer three, four, maybe five. They just define service levels and right. they have one common pool, which is the most restrictive. Yeah, I want to see the SLA that has 64 levels of service. That's yeah. a big document. I, I, I don't think that's even Microsoft's pricing went okay, so far. Okay, so you set the number at lots. <laughs> yeah. And we're, and we're going to be good for now. Yeah. I've heard we've said that before. Just like the number. Question at the back. So what's an IO? In, so you usually, so we we measure IO um, in a uh, single page reads, but sometimes we can, we can group them up to eight pages, so you can get up to sixty-four uh, key, key IO in and out. So it's, this is. Uh, there are two, two types of IOs in a SQL Server. It's a logical and a physical. Logical is when your database application wants to do something, and the physical is when it's actually written or read from the disk. So, and we can, we can group them differently. But in majority of cases, that's one page. Okay. That's one, one page is eight kilobytes. We, 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 we uh, total on IOs, not, not, not on the bandwidth. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Shep? 
I had, yeah, real quick. I had an interesting that just reminded me when you asked about the backup IOs. I had a customer uh, recently tell me that they wanted to actually throttle their backups. Interesting. Um, yeah. And that was the solution for doing it was to use a resource governor to actually cap their backup IO to a low enough rate, even if it took you know several hours, just so it didn't impede uh, IO performance of the rest of yeah, the. Yeah. So drive. I got to guess they were they were able to notice in operations that the right. backup was running and everything was slow. Yeah. Which yeah, usually customers come to us and we want our backups in three seconds or less. Yeah. Faster. You know, we had one. Hey, like, okay, I've got a terabyte. I want to back it up in eight hours or longer. I'm like, yeah. Really? So yes. So it can be used <laughs> as kind of a I guess an off use that we, I would not have considered. So. Well, and you got to think you get to a point where if you're busy every hour anyway. Then it's more, you know, you just can't afford that bad hour. So right. spread it out over several so that it's not near as bad. So, yeah. They, I, I've never considered that use of that resource government. I That's had really to ask them like three times. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'll put that one in my back pocket. Exactly. Question here? Yep. Uh, pretend I'm an uh, accidental DBA slash developer that's trying to pitch uh, 2014 prior to service pack one. Um, to my director of IT, which is calling, you know, this bleeding edge technology. Beyond what's documented, is there anything that you guys could say to him or have me say to him that would suggest this is better than the past, out of curiosity? I would say that two large groups of things that were uh, added or changed in the SQL 2014. First huge group is a performance-related Hackathon column store, buffer pool extension, all those uh, cardinality estimator things. So all, all those things is a large group of performance improvements, and most of them are so significant that uh, it's probably enough. Just single feature would be enough to get get very good impression. And another set of features is features for integration with Azure. And here we have, it's also around all the places. So it's a backup, it's uh, additional replicas, it's uh, ad additional deployment and manageability scenarios. So there's a lot of other things that we have added for Azure that makes it more convenient for you to use it. The one other thing I want to comment on this, because I had this question uh, when I was out in the field. And obviously, it was a question that came up when I was a DBA as well. Um, and one of the things that's really difficult is no one wants to talk to me now that I'm inside about SQL 2014 until it's RTM. Uh, the community technology previews were available a year ago. So w one of the things that a lot of customers will say, especially the guys at the end who really want to start adopting, they're like, okay, you RTM, now I've got to wait a year. With the community technology preview, that's kind of the point for you to get it inside the organization and let them start looking at it so they can start figuring out. I mean, I realize that a lot of the features are in flux because we're making them better. And occasionally, at the very last minute, we've been known to pull one or two out a little bit. Um, but that's, that's an interesting time to get involved with the uh, preview. And if you, know, you feel really good about it, you can be involved in the tap as well where you get direct feedback. It's um, even but, earlier. But generally speaking, if a feature is made it to CTP, it's not like you're going to pull it. Right. So it's, it's not... It's I think I can maybe track. once in 10 years I've seen that happen, and I couldn't even tell you what we did. But right. yeah, I think we actually ended up releasing it in Service Pack 1. So, <laughs> but yeah, that almost never happens. And no one knows what that feature was. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing. It's almost like it's, it's opposed to trying to sell somebody now. By the time you've sold it to them, SP1 will be out. So, you you know, they've won their battle anyway. <laughs> But, you know, and the other thing was, it's like for you and then for even your business, it's like, you know, get them to give you a couple of VMs, even if they're a couple of VMs in the cloud, you know, because they're fairly cheap there if you get a small one and just start playing with the features. Because when we did CTP, the day we released the technology preview on premise for the, so you could download the ISO, we also did a simultaneous release to the gallery, the image gallery in the cloud. So then you go up there, you do one click deploy and you've got your, you know, your next version of SQL that you can start playing with. So we've at least made it easier that the argument of um, your enterprise telling you, I'm not going to give you a server to do this, kind of goes away because you can go stand up a two-core machine in the cloud with just enough memory to go play. And then you can start working on the kind of, I guess, this, you know, you, number one, you learning, and number two, proving to them that these things are going to be useful for you. And Maybe uh, a different interpretation of, of the question was, would be, what if I don't want to take advantage of these specific new features, the new column store features, the in-memory LTP, you know, uh, what on this list or other things is, is, is still compelling enough um, for me to use. Maybe or a better way to say it is where I don't have to make significant changes to my application or um, schemas and still get gains. Um, 
And I think you see that, uh, if I go through the list here, the uh, online index creation and partition uh, switching, um, we've narrowed the window even more for um, when locks are held as we're finalizing uh, the online index creation um, to the point where it, I don't know if anyone else comments on the panel to, to it barely yeah. even shows up. Right, so this is one of the topics. I'll jump into it really quickly because it is cool. For the uh, partition switch and for the online uh, re-index, when we go to switch the index back in, one of the things we've always had to do was take a, a schema modification lock. Um, those are very unfriendly with just about everything else you run against SQL. Um, so we <laughs> had a, a few people work on it, and they what they ended up doing was they created a new, basically it's a new locking queue. It's a low priority locking queue. So you now have the option in the, with additional syntax for the, uh, the online re-index and for the partition switch to where you can say, uh, you add a parameter, this is max duration, which adding that one little flag says, I want to wait this long before you either, number one, kill all the users and execute my switch, or number two, commit suicide. Um, which means that the switch will just uh, kill itself, it'll log an error and move on with life and that's your problem to deal with when you come back in. Uh, the testing we've done, um, and even the demos that they do, we need that schema modification lock for typically a millisecond or two. And we've learned that even when, they're, uh, when we did the early testing on this, uh, probably a little over a year ago now, uh, when the customers were running this, the partition switch against an OLTP workload, we were finding an opportunity to catch uh, a schema lock long enough and do the switch for the partition switch before the users ever noticed anything would happen. Hmm. But we don't create the blocking chain anymore is the cool part. So now the whole blocking chain goes away because the DDLX is waiting now waiting in a completely different queue. Um, Kimberly has a question back there. So I've actually done something like this programmatically myself where I basically act like a spin lock. I don't get into the queue until I see that long-running operations have drained off. And then once there's no long-running operations, I'll get in the queue, but I'll set a timer that says if I don't actually succeed, I'll bail. So I basically am doing that with a lock timeout. So it's very similar, but I use it for things like SP recompile table name, which also requires a schema mod lock. Okay. So old Ultimately, my question is, is there any way to use that feature on other things, or is it literally just tied to those two features? It is only tied to the partition switch and the online re-index today. Okay, so That's my all code it is. is still cool then. Yes, it's only those two features. Yeah, Unfortunately, yeah, the flexibility does not exist in any other of the right. DDL. I, I just wanted to confirm that yes. it wasn't like an extension I could use with a no. schema mod lock in general. It's literally just extensions to those very right. common, very problematic blocking scenarios. So those I, are the ones we I get yelled it. at the most. So we fix those two first. Yeah, yeah, no, right on. Cool, thanks. One other thing that we can mention for, for the situation when you're trying to convince people to start using something new, uh, it's not always needed to convert them to the SQL Server 2014. There is also separate standalone tool which is on the list uh, that you can use to do some uh, cloud backups and it works with any previous version of the SQL Server. So we tested it back to 2005, most likely it will work with the previous version, it just we haven't tested it and it's not supported officially, but you, you could still try. And that's a standalone tool, that's a free tool, you, you can use it, it will work with any SQL server. Was, was the C, uh, I wasn't involved with like when 2012 was out, again, knowing that I'm a developer and an accidental DBA, um, was the CTP any longer for 2014 than 2012 or any previous version, anything like that? Not really. I mean, we, we kind of have a rollout schedule that's pretty stable. Okay. You know, we plan on when the first CTP goes out, and if you're in the TAP program, you may get an occasional extra build now and then. But, yeah, I mean, we our CTP schedule is fairly locked down and pretty consistent. What the exact dates are, I mean, it's decided by management long in advance, and we try and hit those targets. So, but our as as far as our production release schedule, it's no secret that we're targeting 18 months for each version of SQL. So, you know, and that's actually how, tr how quickly we try and roll out. So, and in a lot of ways, CTPs is just getting that code out into the wild so you can try all the different configurations and all the different right. behaviors that people are putting it against. It's yeah, and it's too it's uh, it's too focused. I mean, obviously, we need to get out and find out what customers uh, you know get their workloads on it because we yeah. can't emulate every workload in the world. We wish no, we humans could. Humans are weirder and, than you think. And we try. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and then obviously, you know, it's to get feedback and figure out what's working, what's not working. And even in the case of uh, uh, Hecaton, there were some things we added in at the end. It's like customers are like, we have to, have to, have to have this. 
you know, so, I mean, I think identity didn't make it until the very end because enough customers were like, we don't want to use sequence, we want identity. Readable secondary. Yeah, so there were some few things. And so the community, as part of the CTP, get to influence the product before it goes to RTM, which is really a big deal. It's really important. Um, one thing before we run out of time, I want to mention on the, uh, the, uh, the uh, managed lock priority is what we call the technology for the partition switch and the online re-index. Um, so the max duration, um, this is really important. So you can actually set your max duration that if you want it to run during your maintenance window, let's say I think I can wait eight hours before I either have the process commit suicide or if I have it uh, kill all the users and just execute the switch anyway. There is a point where we enter that, that if you set the max duration, it will actually stop log truncation. So um, there's a caveat that if you go too long, because we'll allow you to wait 49 days. Wow. You may not have enough disk space for 49 days of transaction logs. So <laughs> well, be very out. weary. Yeah, be very weary, because at that point, we have entered the low-weight lock, or you know, even as a low-weight lock, there's still, there's still a caveat that, yeah, you are affecting the system um, that you will stop, because we actually we have an LSN that we have to keep track of, which means nothing after that's going to get touched. So in the um, videos I saw about Hackathon, it was like, you know, go to your tables, click this box on the table, it'll go into memory, and your database will be 100 times faster. I mean, like, what's the reality behind it, and what kind of, how easy is it to set up? Where can I use it? You know, just speak to it, I guess. Press the awesome button. <laughs> uh, I'll take that. I'll take that quick. I'll take that quickly, and then Yos has whole talks on it uh, tomorrow. Um, uh, in it can be that easy, but generally it's not. Right. Okay. So, so if if uh, you have a fairly simple schema and a fairly simple set of indexes and a fairly simple workload. Yeah, you can just so do So all that. demos, this will work perfectly. Yeah, yeah, it. demos work great on this. <laughs> um, the key point is it's a choice. It's a choice you can make on individual tables. It's a choice you can make on individual stored procedures. And if you encounter something, let's say you, you've got a stored procedure that's using one of these memory-optimized tables, but uh, it's too hard to convert right now. It, it, it doesn't naturally convert into natively compiled, which is one of the uh, key performance options we have. Um, uh, you're not obligated to make that change right then. You can still use uh, the memory optimized table without um, uh, converting the store procedure if, it can, if you need to make changes to the store procedure to take advantage of it. Um, Yost might have some other Yeah, um, I, I want to make a comment about uh, patterns it is useful for because it is even if your uh, schema and query surface area do match with capabilities in memory OLTP, it's still not a guarantee that, that it will make everything faster. It is specifically uh, geared towards uh, OLTP style operations where you have your operations are, uh, you have short running transactions, you touch a, a relatively small number of rows and you have a lot of concurrent sessions, a lot of concurrent transactions uh, going on and you have, and especially if things are, if your operations are like kind of write heavy, and if you rely a lot on things like point lookups, nested loops, joins, those are things that, that we really optimize very much. But if you are doing a lot of table scans, for example, doing hash joins, these type of things, reporting style queries, it, uh, we don't really optimize those. It's kind of a related comment, but um, it's not a solution to your I.O. problems. People think in memory. So first of all, as Shep said, in memory, everything's durable. Um, it's optional to make it non-durable. Everything's durable and, and transactional and acid. Um, uh, but it's, if you have I.O. problems, this is not going to solve, solve that. If, if you, you know, if you want to eliminate I.O. problems, get more memory. And so it's only once you've, um, you've kind of solved your I.O. problems does this technology become interesting. And um, tomorrow in, in the talks when we talk about performance, we're always comparing um, the traditional regular tables and the memory optimized tables when both are completely in memory. So none of the performance gains you hear about are because we eliminated I.O. They're all based on main memory processing efficiency. Uh, and, that, and that's the reason the column store technology is known as a main, an in-memory technology because uh, the performance of it um, Yes, it can eliminate I.O. because of the compression, but the real core of the performance is how we feed the CPUs with the data. And, um, and that's exactly what Hecaton does. So at a, at a low level, they're very different technologies, but at a high level, they follow some very similar principles about where we optimize for performance and how. 
Awesome. Uh, yeah, one thing I would like to add to, to IO. So you don't uh, eliminate, indeed, you don't eliminate uh, log uh, IO bottleneck. So if you are, if you are IO bottleneck on the database transaction log, it will not buy you anything because still you want your transactions to be fully durable, uh, uh, flushed to the log, right? So if your server falls over, uh, you restart, you st everything is still there. Right? And it also works with always on uh, and fill over clustering, ultra high availability scenarios. Uh, so still you need to do the log IO with every transaction. But if you are IO bottlenecked on your data files, I mean, we do, we do eliminate that by putting the data in memory. And we do have, uh, aside from the log, we do have a persistent copy of the tables on disk, but also the IO pattern for that is different from, uh, uh, from your regular MDF data files. It's more of a streaming pattern, so we can usually use more of the uh, IO bandwidth. Let's give a big hand to our panel. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.